It's time for Real Ag Radio on Rural Radio Channel 147 on Sirius XM. Radio and realagriculture.com is your home for insight and analysis of the issues that are impacting your farm business. Let's get real and get connected with Real Ag Radio. Hello and welcome to this June 20th, Tuesday edition of the Real Ag Radio show. I am your host, because it's Tuesday, Lindsay Smith. And uh, today's show is a really good one. I've got a clip from last night's episode of The Agronomist with Johanna Lindeboom and Bob Thurwall, all about emergence issues on soybean and corn. Uh, please check it out. And uh, also, if you want to hear more, head to realagriculture.com slash agronomist. You can see the whole episode. Really good one. But we've also got an incredibly important discussion on impending rules that have to do with financial disclosures. You may have to submit either to your accountant and maybe even to your bank. And this is especially important if you farm in Western Canada. So we'll dig into that later in the show. And uh, your regular host, Sean Haney, makes a, a bit of an appearance at the end of the show where we talk about the ever-important combine prep. Yes, I know it's June, but before you know it, we'll be into the winter uh, wheat, into the winter barley, and uh, having the combine ready is just so very important. Okay, so let's get on with the show. Of course, we love your feedback. You can call that Real Ag Feedback Line, 1-855-776-6147, or you can zip me an email, lsmith at realagriculture.com or of course find us across social media let's go to a break and i'll be back with a clip from the agronomist right after this advanced canola trait technology is here and it's soon to be the talk of the town optimum glide delivers excellent yield potential and agronomic trait performance Improved crop safety, enhanced weed control, and a wider window of application. You're going to want to see this. Learn more at OptimumGlide.ca. How's your seed quality? What should you treat with? What about herbicide carryover and environmental concerns? Spring is here, and you've got a lot of things to think about in regards to your pulse crop. The Pulse School on Real Agriculture has information and advice for all these questions and more to help you navigate this season. Brought to you by BASF. Pulse School episodes are available at PulseSchool.com, RealAgriculture.com, or as a podcast on your favorite streaming service. Download the latest episode today. Infuse some energy into your next corporate event, customer meeting, or conference with Real Ag Radio, Canada's national agriculture radio show. Create a unique experience at your next event with host Sean Haney, broadcasting Real Ag Radio live on Sirius XM, featuring exciting guests, captivating interviews, and the latest news from the agriculture community. Contact advertising at realagriculture.com or call 587-787-1795 to book your on-location with Real Ag Radio today. Welcome back to Real Ag Radio. I am your host, Lindsay Smith, and this segment is brought to you by U.S. Borax. Granubor, ask for it by name. 
All right, we hop into this clip from last night's episode of The Agronomist with Johanna Lindeboom and Bob Thurwall. Uh, you'll hear them discussing the emergence issues that much of Ontario experienced this spring, what you can or cannot do about it. There are some success stories, the impact it may have on the growing season, uh, and of course, that all-important replant decision. There is still a bit of time. All right, let's listen. Okay, so yes, we are talking about uh, some challenging conditions this spring. Johanna, why don't you just walk us through sort of, at least for your area, but I think conditions are pretty similar, um, what that April into May window really looked like and the challenges it set out for growers. Yeah, so I think probably one of the challenges has been the extremes, right? We went from, uh, you know, a really hot and dry week, and I think it was like, early April, late March to really wet to warming up and then, you know, started planting, snapped back to a couple really cold nights. And then uh, we had a little bit of rain as a break now and we're back to hot again. So it's presented some interesting challenges. Uh, one of our biggest challenges has been, I've never seen the clay this hard. A lot of people mm. are talking about it from the mild winter, not having as much freeze thaw action in the soil. So not seeing it break up uh, the way we normally would, but that's definitely been a challenge for us. A lot of dry planting conditions. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been an interesting one for sure. Now, Bob, I thought we wanted dry during planting. Was, that, was it too dry? Well, yeah, there's a difference between dry and super dry. Never mm. seen before dry. So uh, absolutely, we would rather, uh, you know, what's the, what's the saying? Uh, plant into dust and the bins will bust. So it is mm -hmm. nice to get, uh, you know, corn soybeans in the ground, get their roots established, driving down deep and helping, uh, you know, to collect, being able to collect some moisture later on in the season if it does get dry. So, so typically uh, dry in the spring is nice, but I would just echo some of the things Joanna mentioned. You know, we had what I describe as Caribbean weather in the week of April 12th, or 14th in that range. And then we went backwards and uh, there was a tiny bit of crop put in, in April in that, that hot week. And then really most of the guys uh, west of uh, London really didn't get going until the, I think it was the 8th of May. Yeah. And, uh, and so we, those guys that got started early had a pretty good start. Like Joanna mentioned, the clay, I've never seen it so hard either. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we had the, the driest May on record, I think, in the last 50 years. And one rain in May, you know, guys started planting and finished planting corn soybeans without getting their planter wet. It's just unheard of. Yeah. The, so, yeah, the clay was really, really hard. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what, there was less frost this year. We also had a couple of big, heavy rain events in March and April that I think really pounded that clay and, yeah. and made her hard. Yeah. So I guess yeah. that's my one question. Johanna, did you see any evidence of sort of early work or, or last fall work that spelt perhaps worse conditions this spring? I mean, we, we'd all love a crystal ball to know what we'll be up against, but, uh, or was it the other way around? We were sort of waiting around to get stuff done, but uh, were there any sort of sins of going into early in those earlier windows? Cause we didn't have that, that uh, terrible winter or long winter. 
I don't think there's a lot of errors last fall that we saw, but any kind of spring tillage this year was really, really difficult uh, to try and get a seed bed out of it. Um, you know, what would normally take guys two passes took three or four in some cases. And unfortunately, I hate to say it, but some of our cover crops were some of the hardest ground to deal with, I think, just because it pulled a lot of moisture out early. Yeah. Well, well, for sure, if anyone's got any questions or comments on that one, uh, do throw them in there because that's, that certainly has been a hot topic, uh, lately, um, in these last few weeks is trying to figure out, you know, what some of the fallout might be from, uh, some of these big water using crops potentially. Um, but let's get into some of the specifics of what we've seen. So Bob, maybe I'll start with you. Uh, we do have some great visuals as well, but Bob, what have been, what has been perhaps one of the most common emergence issues that you've seen either for soy or, or corn? Yeah, I'll start with soybeans. That was really the crop that really struggled for us um, across most of Ontario. And um, the corn seemed to get off to a good start. Even the guys planted corn and soybeans the same day into similar conditions across the road kind of thing. And the corn seemed to have enough moisture to get started. And the soybeans really struggled. And uh, by no fault of their own, a lot of growers planted deeper than they normally would this year. And I think it, at the time it was the right thing to do. We were chasing moisture and we were all planting, you know, two and a half inches on the clay, whether it was no-till or whether it was worked ground that had dried out a little bit. And I think, again, doing the right thing, chasing moisture, we, we always like to get that seed into moisture. But then we got a, a little rain the 19th of May. Most of our area in, in the southwest got about a half inch. Some areas got an inch. And then the following week, we had two nights of frost. So it rained mm-hmm. on, the, on Friday night. We had two nights of frost, Wednesday and Thursday night following. And I think those two combinations really set up the, uh, the seed trench so hard and we even had guys that, you know, had no-tilled in, had a nice crumble on top of the seed trench. It wasn't really a heavy crust that we're normally used to with, with a bit of rain on the clay. But the seed trench was so tight. It was just holding those plants in there, and it was really, really tough to get those through. Mm-hmm. And uh, the soybeans were definitely our biggest trouble this year. And then in some areas, you know, guys would set up their drill to plant two to two and a half inches in the hardest parts of the field and they'd have their down pressure set for that and then in the in the softer uh, soil areas of the field we'd get down to three inches mm-hmm. well soybeans soybeans have a really tough time coming from three inches um, I don't like three inches personally I think two and a half is kind of the max but again that's just the way conditions went and those beans that were in three inches just just ran out of gas Mm-hmm. They, they did. Yeah. Yeah. So Johanna, similar story for beans in your area as well. Uh, yeah. I kind of echo those comments. I do think in most cases where we were able to plant to moisture at two and a half inches deep, uh, we did okay with that. Um, for the most part, like that May 19th, May 20th rain is what marks a lot of our for sure replants, like stuff planted before that rain, uh, had a lot of issues versus stuff planted the day after the rain is some of the best that we've seen. Uh, one of my customers told me if he had it his way, he would have planted everything on May 21st. Uh, but yeah. unfortunately, we don't have big enough planters for that. So, right. um, 
Yeah. Yeah. Definitely and, echo a lot of Bob's comments there. But also we're, we're also told we're supposed to go in early, 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 early. So I totally get where, you know, you've got acres to cover. You've got a calendar that you don't know what's going to come a week after. So yeah. So again, being able to look back and say, should have waited to the 21st. If you knew you were going to have great conditions at the 21st, you'd wait, but we don't know. So it happens. Um, okay. I do want to, let's, if we, I, Johanna, maybe you can pick which slide it is. Um, but looking at some of these soybeans that certainly got, uh, either some of that cold injury or just crusting or just couldn't get out of the ground. Um, which slide is it? I think I wrote it down, but maybe yeah, we can check. Slide two, we can start with. Start there. Uh, just to echo yeah, on your go. comment there about not knowing the future, I think talking to a lot of growers, there wasn't too many people happy with the planting conditions they were planting into on the clay, uh, trying all sorts of things to work it out. And yeah, I don't think we can fault anybody for not wanting to park their planter, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in the second week of May during spring, right? And yeah. some of the fields made it up and they're okay. Uh, like Bob said, like most of our corn, we're pretty happy with. So, yeah. Um, yeah so these cold nights, uh, the one thing that really struck me, you know, yes, we do have some heavy clay, but we have some really nice sandy loam as well. Uh, and the first corn I was looking at was on some of the best ground in my territory. And that's where this leafy note underground picture in the top left comes from. Uh, mm. And there was no crust on it, right? So it, it looks exactly like it got crusted. Um, but you know, seeing a lot of this and the corn stand was pretty good. Like still had probably 30,000 plants, but you could tell there was obvious skips and that's what really struck it for me. Like that was one of my first days digging up populations. I thought it looks like we actually did get some injury from this cold. Uh, you can see in the bottom left-hand corner, one of those beans, it looks like it almost came up to the surface and then it sort of spiraled back down to mm -hmm. me that's a sign of, you know, probably some cold injury instead of crusting. And we saw a couple weird ones like that um, or some that looked like they had a crust, but there was really no crust on top. And it was that tight seed trench that Bob was talking about. I feel like this is like, nope, it's like going up. Mm, nope. Going back down, <laughs> not <laughs> doing this. Yeah. Those are the nopes. Um, okay. So Bob, when you see something like, the the corn leafing out underground but as johanna said no crust so that's cold injury is that a common symptom that you would see in cold injury a absolutely yeah absolutely yeah. we saw okay. do i think i think uh i think it just really took the vigor out of the soybeans particularly but mm -hmm. when you see that with corn um yeah for sure it, it's coming up it maybe meets a little bit of resistance um, it doesn't have to be a heavy crust, but then that cold shock and it'll just, the ones, the corn plants that maybe have a little less vigor than other ones will just turn around and try to leaf out. Yeah. And yeah. No go. They're trying, they're trying guys. They're trying. They're doing their uh, yeah, they're doing their best. All right. Jason vote out of Manitoba shares that chasing moisture in the clay in South Central Manitoba for soybeans was the right thing to do this year using air quotes though. Uh, most plants emerged evenly. Others have soybeans that are anywhere from emerging to V3, V4. So a lot of, uh, a lot of variability there. But again, the, the quotes in this year, because exactly that you yep. don't always know. Um, if going deeper to moisture is the right call. Um, and it does also matter what happens 
thereafter, right? That, that what happens after that seed goes in the ground in those next few days can make or break that decision as well. So, um, yeah, so definitely interesting to see. Okay. So we've got definitely some cold injury. Um, as jo- Johanna, you use the terrible term, the replant term. So we do want to tackle a little bit of that tonight. Um, making that call for replants. What, um, you know, what is that minimum plant stand that you absolutely have to have? Johanna, you've walked some of these fields. You just joined us on a, on a school episode on this very topic. How do you make the call on, on the replants? Yeah, so uh, to give you an idea, like we were being really patient with the rains we had last week. I did the math real quick. I think I got probably 1,100 acres to walk with some serious wow. replant concerns in phone calls today wow. alone. Um, so it definitely is out there. Uh, mm-hmm. Normally, you'd say minimum 100,000 plants per acre. Uh, on some of the clays, we'd like to see 120 to 140, but uh, this late in the year, we're going to put up with 100, 110,000 if they're healthy plants. And that's a big consideration is uh, are all the plants that are up, are they healthy, are they looking good, or are they sort of half dead already? I think having this rain over the last week was, you know, one of my coworkers would call it a million dollar rain because it saved mm-hmm. a lot of crops for us. Uh, and I think just the way the top of the soil stayed moist, uh, the beans were able to push up and seeing a lot more promising fields right now. So Bob, when, so same idea, when you're getting calls like Johanna's getting and you're walking fields that, you know, are on that cusp, we are, you know, June 19th, we're getting through June here. Uh, what goes into the, a decision like that right now, this late in the year? Well, Joanna covered it pretty well. Uh, the other thing I would just add is how, how consistent the stand is across because uh, um, you can get lots of, lots of stands that are maybe in that 120 to 140, but then you'll get gaps that, uh, you know, maybe 60 or 80, depending where water laid or just a, a harder part of the soil, maybe a clay knoll, those kinds of things. And uh, so we always try to figure out, okay, is it worth? Is it a big enough patch worthwhile bringing the planter out to this field for? Maybe it's just a little tiny piece in the corner that you would ignore. But most often, you know, it's, it's just patchy throughout the field because, um, you know, different elevation, a clay knoll. It could be a low hard spot where water laid that would be harder, you know, and couldn't get the beans down into moisture. Um, we also saw a lot of soybeans uh, that just sat dry in dry dirt, just like they were in the bag the day you brought them home from the dealer. And so these recent rains have started uh, those those soybeans to germinate. And a lot of those have popped through in six or seven or eight days. But some of them I've noticed uh, this the last couple of days looking uh, are just struggling as well. I'm not sure all of those are going to make it. All right, we're going to take a quick break and I will be back with Garner Diabold with the Saskatchewan Stock Growers Association to talk about this financial disclosure statement that is uh, potentially coming to Canada as early as this summer. Boron 
boron is an essential micronutrient for plant growth, and without boron, your crops can't absorb the macronutrients they need for higher yields. Although borates occur naturally, boron deficiency is a common soil problem. Whether in direct soil application, through fertigation, or as a foliar spray, U.S. Borax has the right refined product for your crops. U.S. Borax products are specifically formulated to combine with other fertilizers, lowering your application costs. Learn more at borax.com slash egg. As you head out into the field this season, the Corn School's got you covered. Everything from tillage discussions, weed control info, field trial results, yield strategies, and more. The Corn School on realagriculture.com has the information and advice you need to help you succeed. Brought to you by Pride Seeds and BASF. Corn School episodes are available at cornschool.com, from realagriculture.com, or as a podcast from your favorite streaming service. Download the latest episode today. Hi, I'm Bernard Tobin, host of the Soybean School on realagriculture.com. Throughout the year, on the Soybean School, we'll bring you timely agronomic video content from planting to harvest, from the latest agronomic research to the latest in production technology. Check out our massive video library on YouTube, realagriculture.com or download the audio podcast versions wherever you get your podcasts the soybean school is brought to you by pride seeds basf and syngenta canada Welcome back to Real Egg Radio. I am your host for the day, Lindsay Smith. And joining me now for a very important but perhaps frustrating conversation is Garner Diabald. He's the president of the Saskatchewan Stock Growers Association. Welcome here, Garner. All right. So so one of the reasons that uh, that we're having this conversation is about the potential of new sustainable sustainability financial disclosure standards coming to Canada and if anyone was sort of following along last week uh, over social media, this issue popped up and there were, I got to say, far more questions than anybody had answers for as to what this even is and what it could mean. And that is super concerning. So, Garner, catch us up on from the stock growers perspective. Uh, what's the concern and, and what is this even all about? For sure. I, I will, uh, you know, try to rough out uh, what our understanding is of, of, you know, and what our concerns are here, I guess, as far as these standards here that are, are being uh, r- rushed I- into uh, use here in, in Canada. And, and again, it's something that started out uh, the International Sustainability Standards Board is something that has been operating for a while. And, and uh, recently, a year ago here, uh, Canada followed through here as well with a, with a with a Canadian Sustainability Standards Board, and and so they are coming uh, with with some recommendations here again that uh, will have a huge impact on on agriculture for sure. Uh, uh, it will impact the the economics of it. Uh, you know, it's gonna it's gonna increase cost of production in many ways, and and I'll try to outline some of that, I guess, as as we go through this. And it, it's very difficult to understand, and we do have a lot of concerns about it. Uh, you know, a lot of it is because it's been rushed, rushed through, and and will be implemented here this summer by the sounds of it. So, uh, again, without any public consultation, and and that's what we're asking for is 
is is just to have the opportunity, I guess, to uh, try to understand this a little bit better and get uh, get people that will comment on it. And and uh, again, this is for, you know being brought forward here by a group that's that's not elected and not accountable to anybody. And our people federally and, and provincial to a certain degree as well need to take a, a stand on this. And and you know it, again because of the negative impact it'll have on our economy and negative impact it will have on, uh, you know, just food food production and, and then ultimately the cost of food, it's, it's going to increase because of this. And and so uh, we do have a lot of concern over this. So, okay, and, and, and this is the part where we're trying to dig into what this even is or means. So when we talk about sustainability and we talk about standards or, or those sorts of things, we're usually talking about, you know, production. We're usually talking about record keeping or how you manage land, though that kind of sustainability. What we're talking about here, though, this is this is all on the financial side. And I'm having a really hard time understanding what exactly would potentially uh, corporations or companies be reporting. So and I'm going to assume to CRA or those sorts of things. What kind of information are they looking for that links up to sustainability? Right, and and so that that is it. Like they they are linking this all to a, a, you know a, a financial you know the economics of it, I guess. But in, in the end, what it is, it, it's greenhouse gas reporting uh, upstream and also downstream, um, and also the reporting of that. And and so it is a system that will be set up to, uh, more, more or less so, social credit scoring. And so if you're a huge emitter. Uh, there will be a cost to that, and, and there again, too, in, in simple terms, it would be uh, an increased cost or possibly that you may have a financial institution that may not even want to do business with you if, if you are a huge emitter. And, and so the cost there, again, of capital and the cost of operation will increase dramatically in those cases. So, uh, again, you know, because of this, there's a huge cost to the reporting side of it. Again, it, it'll have to be third-party verified. So, uh, again, accounting side and just the record-keeping side, there's a huge cost to that as well. So, you know, when you when you look at that, and, and again, I don't uh, begin to understand it entirely, but those are the concerns that we have is that it will just increase you know, the cost of doing business and have a huge impact on small business and, and especially on agriculture. So, you know, those are the things that, uh, that we're looking at, um, you know, and, and, and there, like you had said earlier, there's more questions probably than what we have answers for, but, you know, that's why we're calling for or asking that there is some, you know, that we are consulted on it and have that opportunity. And many times in agriculture, one of the biggest problems is like they want to measure everything as, as gross emitters. And, and on, on the agriculture side, net emissions would be more appropriate. It would be something that we would get some credit for the good work that we've done, you know, whether that is on the grain side or on the, on the livestock side that we are, we sequester carbon and and rarely get any credit for it. So mm-hmm. that's where you know it, it rather rather than gross emissions, let's look at net emissions, and uh, you know that would be part of the conversation anyway. Mm-hmm. And that is so. Let's let's touch on that then. Uh, certainly, the Saskatchewan stock growers circulated the letter that that you did send to to Agriculture and Agri Food Canada Minister Marie Claude Bibeau. Uh, have you had a response on that? I know it hasn't been that many days, but have you heard anything directly uh, from the ministry or from the government in general on the possibility of having any sort of well, public consultation? Well, the, their their response. We did get a, a quick 
uh, informal brief response from them that they're not experts on this and, and really had no um, you know suggestion of, of what they would do or could do and, and really were not uh, you know it didn't sound like they were prepared to stand up for you know for for the producers side of it for sure or for agriculture in general it was something that it just sounded like that they would let this process go ahead and that they had no influence on an independent party like this and and so again rather than saying that they would stand up for agriculture and for producers or for Canadian consumers in general they've more or less just shrugged and said there really isn't anything that they could do about it and and that's incorrect I mean if you definitely could initiate some uh, you know, a way that we could sit down and have a discussion on this and, and you know, just see where they wanted to go with it and, and you know, look at the, the impact that it may have on the economy and, and you know, just to, to make sure that we're not rushing this through and rushing into something here that's going to have a real negative impact on the economy. Okay, thank you, Garner, for that conversation. There is so much more to this, and so stick around with me after the break. I've got Dr. Tammy Nemeth joining me to further explain where these standards are coming from, how they may be implemented, and, well, to echo Garner's point, why we need a public consultation on how Canada plans to implement these rules. We'll be back right after this. If you're involved in the agriculture industry, it's important to stay informed on all the latest issues affecting your business. At realagriculture.com, we offer fast, reliable news, information, and insights to help you keep on top of all of the latest in Canadian agriculture. Visit realagriculture.com and sign up for our free daily newsletter covering everything from news, agronomy, animal agriculture, and much more. Visit realagriculture.com forward slash subscribe today. Whether you're seeding, harvesting, or anything in between, the Wheat School on realagriculture.com has you covered. Timely agronomic information from industry experts available online anytime. Give your wheat crop a good start and a great finish with the Wheat School on realagriculture.com. Brought to you by CNM Seeds, Syngenta Canada, and the Alberta Wheat and Barley Commission. Welcome back to Real Egg Radio. I am Lindsay Smith, and joining me now on the line is Dr. Tammy Nemeth with ESG Squared Insight. Tammy, we're talking about sustainability and climate-related financial disclosure, and it's a mouthful, and it's also a brainful. So we heard earlier this week uh, from Garner Diabald with the Saskatchewan Stock Growers Association, and he, of course, from a producer perspective, is quite concerned about what these disclosures may mean for business and especially for ranchers and farmers in Canada. So can you please talk to me like I'm five? Because I'm trying to figure out what these disclosures are, who is responsible for them, and what impact they may have. Those are really good um, terms to try and understand this. So um, about a year ago, the International Sustainability Standards Board was created, and its job was to develop these standards, and which I always refer to it as ESG on steroids. So um, the, there's a proposed five sets of these standards, and these are the first two being released on Monday, June 26th. 
So around the same time that this international board was set up, Canada created the Canadian Sustainability Standards Board to work in lockstep. So these standards are meant to quantify all the emissions and all the sustainability things um, entities are doing. And it's meant to be used by banks, investors, and insurers. So they're going to be told this is mandated. They're going to have to provide this information. So they're going to go to their clients and say, I need you to provide all of this information. So when they established these draft standards last year, um, when they drafted them, they also had an appendix for 68 different industries. So it's agriculture is going to be hit really hard, livestock producers, oil and gas companies, but it's meant to be applied to everybody. Um, the Canadian companies and groups submitted 90 comment letters to this process last year. Over half of them, because I've gone through them all, were critical of certain aspects of these standards, but none of the criticisms were taken into account. So the new Canadian board said in April, the new chair, Charles Antoine Saint-Jean, that he would like to open up consultations with Canadian stakeholders once these standards were finalized and released, which is Monday, June 26th, um, and then to figure out if they want to adopt these for Canada or if there are certain changes that might be made to take into account unique Canadian circumstances. Okay, wonderful explanation. Sort of catches us up, except for... It still, to me, begs the question. So we these are going to be released, and we are not necessarily looking down at an implementation date per se, but do we have a, a set sort of consultation process or period where, as an industry, as the 68 industries, as you note, could weigh in on how this may impact their, their business and, and how we may implement this? That's a good question. So basically, if countries, because a country has to decide they want to accept these standards, if a country decides they want to accept them, um, the the implementation is fiscal year 2024. That's next year. Mm -hmm. There is no specific process for consultation by the Canadian Sustainability Standards Board. All the the new chair said was he would like to open up consultations. It's unclear how they would do that, and most people don't even know. And what mm-hmm. I found interesting was that it it I don't even know if the federal departments know, and how many elected representatives know this is coming. Some of the accountants seem to know. Some of the securities people in the provinces seem to know, but there's been this massive lack of communication on on what these things are, who they're going to affect, how they're going to be implemented. And, you know, there were, there were lots of criticisms, and they had, none of them were taken into account when, they, when right. they were deliberating the drafts. I watched all of the videos of the, the, um, the ISSP talking about the, the different things, and none of the criticisms were really acknowledged beyond, oh, there were some people who were upset, but these other people liked it, so we'll go with that. So, and I'm, I'm a rather practical person. I'm also a livestock producer. So this, this very much, you know, potentially applies to me. I'm still trying to wrap my head around, what am I disclosing? Is it just, you know, what I paid in fuel? Is it what I bought in feed? Like, 
what on earth would I be reporting to my bank that they are accounting for? Okay, so this is where it gets really complicated because one of the things that they, the board really wanted to include was all of the emissions. So scope one is the things you're using directly on your farm, right? So right. the fuel in your truck, um, the emissions of your livestock maybe, anything that's in your operation that you know of that you can track directly. That's okay. scope one. Scope two is the the emissions in the energy that you're getting from your utility. So, for example, if you're in Ontario, you're getting it from uh, Ontario Power or whatever, in Saskatchewan, it's SAS Power or whatever, but you would get the emissions numbers from them for the, for the electricity or if you're using natural gas, um, whatever's in, using to heat your, your farm. So you would get that information from your utility. But scope three is everything else. So, as a livestock producer, there's 15 different categories, and they said they want to, they're mandating all 15 categories of scope three emissions. Basically, everything anyone does must be accounted for. So you'd have to estimate because you'd have to be taking into account the indirect emissions. So if you're a livestock producer, you'd have to account for the emissions of your everyday operations, but also for the, the feed you've purchased, if you've purchased hay or, or feed, the emissions involved in that, emissions embedded in everything on your form, farm. After you've sold your livestock, you'd have to account for the emissions in processing it, transporting the finished product, packaging the product, refrigerating it at the store, the emissions involved of the consumer taking that product home, the refrigeration of that product, the disposal of the packaging, and the emissions involved in preparing and cooking that product, all of it. You'd have to estimate it. Now, the thing is, how are you going to estimate that? Well, they'll come up with some charts that you can maybe draw on to uh, include that in your, in your estimates, but you also have to get third-party verification. So then you're going to have to pay an accountant to audit and make sure that the information you're providing is accurate because since it's a financial disclosure, you're liable for any information right. you put on those forms. So you better, I mean, how are you going to estimate all that stuff accurately? Well, and the- yes. Okay, so first of all, yes. First of all, where do you even begin? How do you even estimate? Where is the list of all of those things for sure? But also, how are we not? So I think about on like the carbon credit side or the uh, a carbon offset side, we cannot double count. How do we make sure we're not double counting emissions? Because if I'm supposed to estimate the processing and all the way through to, you know, packaging and cooking. What about the processor? Does the processor not have to account for all of its scope one, two, and three? So are we not then creating a quagmire of double counting of emissions? And I guess after that, if you can offer insight into that, to what end? Like, to me, any of these standards or, uh, you know, or carbon taxes or any of these things, they're supposed to drive a change in behavior. So I'm not sure how double counting emissions and creating an absolute administrative nightmare is going to really change how I farm. You're absolutely right. And that is one of the key issues. I think you really hit on it. What exactly are they trying to achieve? Because if you're doing all of this stuff, 
what's the ultimate goal if everybody is double counting, triple counting? Because that's what it'll be. Mm-hmm. If everybody has to account everything in scope three, everyone's counting it over and over and over and over again. And so what behaviors are they trying to change? Well, if you're producing anything, you're penalized for it. Mm-hmm. So are they trying to say, don't produce anything? So you, if you sit around in an apartment and huddle around, I don't know, happy dreams, then that's okay, <laughs> you know, because you're not emitting very much. Um, so it really is a disincentive for producing anything. Well, and so, and the, and the flip side to this, I guess, is when I think about all the things that I already, when I file my farm statements, when I file with my accountant, a lot of these things are already there in cash value. So if we're going to go through the process of estimating, you know, carbon emissions of all sorts of things, and we're going to be using coefficients or estimates anyway, why would we not just be using what we already file? And if someone really wants to know about the potential emissions impact, why not just use those and create a coefficient based on costs? That's a really good point. Um, I think what the intent um, is that every country will have the same data. And so, therefore, it's easier to keep track of what countries are accomplishing with respect to their Paris Agreement commitments. And so, if everyone's reporting the same stuff, then they can keep better track of what countries are doing if they're meeting their obligations or stated obligations or whatever. Um, but it, it ultimately comes down to the devil being in the details. Because as you point out, you already provide a lot of this information. So why, why not just stick with what you've got if, if banks are happy with that? Um, and it's unfortunate that it's, that it's going in this direction, that it will be so onerous. Um, my understanding in the, in the European Union, for example, they're doing something similar. And um, they're phasing it in. So the first year is companies that are really huge have to do this. And then they're going to drag along all of their supply chain with them. And after five years, it'll be phased in uh, year after year until it's every individual doing it. I don't know if Canada is thinking about it in the same way, um, but there's, there's room to adopt the Canadian way to what the global standard is requiring. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's important is to have that conversation because there's been no conversation. There's been, we're throwing this out there for comment. Hardly anybody knew it was happening except for really big corporations and financial institutions and so on. But the people who, who it's really going to affect are the smaller producers, the medium-sized companies, the little shop on the corner that's going to have to account for um, how many free-range eggs they have in their store and so on. So, I mean, it, we need to have this conversation before it's implemented, not after. And that's what, why I've been trying to sort of explain to people that this is coming and to take the Charles uh, Antoine Saint-Jean at his word that he would open up consultations so that we can have this national conversation. So we heard from, from the stock growers that you know, they had approached Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada so, and, and said, you know, we need this consultation. And, and the response that they got essentially was, you know, not our department. We're, so who, I guess this is perhaps my last question as we run out of time here, but 
who oversees a standard body like this that could essentially tell them, yes, you will have a consultation and here's the format for it? That's a good question. I've been trying to figure that out because there's, there seems to be layers of different uh, boards and groups that are responsible for these things. So the Canadian Sustainability Standards Board is under um, the Department of Finance, ultimately. Mm. And there is also the um, FRAS Canada, which is the financial regulators, so they're the ones, the Financial Reporting and Assurance Standards Canada body, independent body, houses the Canadian Sustainability Standards Board there. There aren't individual, uh, you can't contact the individual board members except on LinkedIn, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, but there is somebody at FRAS Canada who is the vice president overseeing the sustainability stuff, and people can contact her. I would also recommend if to contact your MP and say, do you know about this? Why aren't we having a conversation? Are we not? Is this not a democracy? And don't citizens get a say before these things get put into place? And why why not? And shouldn't they be saying something about that? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. Dr. Nemeth, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. This is uh, infuriating, but incredibly eye-opening. So that's good. Thank you. All right, we'll be back with more Real Ag Radio right after this. Peter Johnson at WheatPeatRealAgriculture.com. I'm the host of The Word, and I love doing The Word. I love the questions. I love the challenges. I love having to apply agronomics to all over the globe and areas outside of my normal jurisdiction. Also, I love the feedback the most where growers challenge me, tell me about their plot results, help me to learn. The Word, absolutely the best part of my day. Canola is more than just a pretty face in the prairie landscape. It's a big business, both here and around the world, that requires you to be informed and up-to-date on everything it takes to grow a successful crop. The Canola School on realagriculture.com has an expert library of video resources covering markets, agronomy, and more to help you grow a healthy and profitable canola crop. Visit canolaschool.com today. Brought to you by BASF Canada and Invigor Hybrid Canola. Sean Haney here with RealAgriculture.com and Real Ag Radio, Rural Radio 147, Sirius XM. We're going to talk equipment and make sure that we're ready for harvest, which uh, I say sadly is right around the corner. It just feels like this year is just, you know, whooshing by. We got to be ready for harvest when it does come. Uh, right now, we're talking to Jim Franchetti. He's a product marketing manager with Parts and Service at Case IH. Jim, great to chat with you. Happy to be here, Sean. Thanks. Okay, uh, when I, so Jim, when we talk about being ready for harvest and having our combines or, you know, or, or combine ready, what are some of the things we need to make sure that we're doing from your perspective with the manufacturer? Sure. Uh, you know, first, uh, of course, is, is bringing it out of storage, uh, making sure that uh, you're doing kind of that once over, um, top to bottom, from front to back uh, inspection yourself, you know, just uh, starting it up. Um, taking a look at it, at everything, you you never know what can happen in storage, right? There's always the possibility or opportunity for rodent infestation or hydraulic lines freezing or uh, a leak happening. So really, just making sure 
um, that when you bring it out of storage, you're taking a good look at it yourself. Uh, and then and next, I would say a uh, good opportunity to open up that operator's manual and uh, follow the steps within there. It contains everything that you need to do and, and pay attention to when you bring that combine out of storage. Um, and usually starting with your, you know, all your fluids and your lubricants, uh, making sure that everything is topped off uh, and, and ready from that perspective, and then really diving into the uh, specific functions of the combine. So, again, kind of doing that front-to-back, top-to-bottom inspection. Yeah, you sent me a note talking about the five W's of combine inspection. So uh, there's there's W's when it comes to huh, you know a topic. Uh, so what, what specifically to combine inspection? What are the five W's? Uh, the who, what, where, when, and why. Okay, so uh, certainly the who is uh, any owner or operator of Case IH combines. Uh, what we're talking about again is that preseason combine inspection and readiness. Um, really just, uh, again, making sure that you're addressing things ahead of the season. I always like to say it's never too early to start taking a look at that piece of machinery and getting yourself prepared. Uh, and also, I think, thinking back of last year's harvest, um, you know, how did it go? Uh, was there anything that you forgot to address when you put it up for storage that you need to handle now? Um, and kind of, you know, put yourself in that mind frame to think about how things went last season um, and if there's anything you need to do right out of the gate uh, in preparation for the upcoming harvest. Um, and certainly where can this be done? Uh, I'm going to encourage every operator uh, to have a good relationship with their local Case IH dealer. Uh, they are certainly the experts. They are going to offer combine clinics. Uh, throughout the months leading up to harvest. Uh, they have and see a, a lot of combines, right? They, they certainly are the experts and can provide you with, with all that information, um, you know, if you're doing the inspection yourself or uh, if you'd like, you know, of course, you can bring that combine into the dealership and have them do, you know, what is it, about a 190-point inspection uh, and really go through the machine, um, uh, you know, uh, thoroughly uh, to make sure that you're set up to go. Um, as far as the when, uh, it's, it's never too early. As I already said, it's, it's important to uh, be thinking about harvest as, as soon as you're done planting. I'd say you want to make sure that you're as prepared as possible. Uh, and why you want to do this? Well, it's, it's, it's pretty simple, right? We want to reduce the downtime or the potential for downtime when harvest actually starts um, and to ensure that we're maximizing our efficiency. You know, these combines are built with a lot of precision, a lot of technology. We want to make sure that operators are utilizing uh, as much as they can to be effective and to get as much grain in the tank uh, as possible. So you mentioned combine clinics. We, we hear a lot about planter clinics and, you know, people making sure that they're cause really doing these, these activities once a year, right? And, and if weather cooperates, it happens over a relatively short period of time. What's the benefit and what am I getting out of a combine clinic if I'm thinking about attending one that my dealer's putting on? Yeah, they, they, uh, Case IH dealerships do a wonderful job with their combine clinics. Um, they are going to have the experts uh, in-house to, to talk to operators and producers directly. Um, so not, a, not only the, you know, the dealerships uh, um, 
service department, uh, they're, they're parts counter people, but oftentimes people, you know, product specialists from Case IH will attend the clinic uh, and be able to share tips and tricks and enhancements and potential upgrades that the, the operator could utilize, um, you know, just to, again, make themselves more effective for the upcoming season. And I think, and additionally, and something that's probably often overlooked or maybe not considered, uh, is the information you'll learn from your peers, right, from your other your colleagues, your, your other farmers and producers in the area that are attending the clinics, an opportunity to hear what questions they're asking. Um, maybe they have certain tips or tricks, you know, uh, for that area, you know, given the, the, the field conditions or crop uh, conditions specific to that area. It's a good opportunity for them to learn uh, from each other, as well as all the experts that the dealership is likely to, to have on hand. Yeah, and across all the different colors and brands of combines, everybody's done a lot of work in the area of, of, of assisting with, you probably, you know, we would probably say AI now when it comes to combine setting, uh, especially like on the go and adjusting to some of the conditions. But there also is a human element there where we can, we can really learn from some of our peers, as you did mention, because, you know, just a, minimizing that, you know, the, the, the good grain that is being thrown over. Just reducing that a little bit at the end of the day really adds up. Totally agree, Sean. And that's it's a very important point. Um, and and you you hit or you mentioned on the um, the technology and the precision and all the calibration that that can be done. Um, there's a good chance, you know, certainly someone from the dealership uh, they'll have you know precision precision uh, farming experts, but even your peers, uh, you know might utilize some of that those features a little bit better than you currently do so you'll be able to learn from them and maybe something uh that you're able to apply to your operation all right and with that we are done another show on this tuesday thank you for joining me so much of course i am your host lindsay smith on tuesdays for the next little while you can find me on social media at Real Loud Lindsay. You can, of course, zip us an email, lsmith at realagriculture.com or find us on social media at Real Agriculture. We've got a Real Ag feedback line as well, one 776 6147 Would love to hear what you think of today's show or any show, quite frankly. Uh, your host, Sean Haney, will be back tomorrow. It's Wednesday. For sure, there'll be some market talk. We also heard some news today out of Health Canada and PMRA about uh, maximum residue limits and perhaps an extension of a pesticide ban on uh, a cosmetic pesticide ban on federal land. So we'll be looking into that and get you all that news likely on tomorrow's show. Really appreciate everyone taking the time today to join me. Uh, big thanks, of course, to my guests on The Agronomist as well, Johanna Lindeboom and Bob Thurwall. Thank Thank you to Garner Diabald, to Tammy Nemeth, and to Sean for joining us for our last segment as well. Okay, I will be back on Friday for the Real Egg Issues panel. Until then, have a safe week. <laughs>